Hello, Jessica. Hi, Don. So you've been in court quite a bit lately. I have. How many times? I was in court three days last week, and then I was in court on Monday. So. Wow. Okay. So recently, the courts have, uh, I think they've been telling people that they, well, they changed the rule. If you're going to make a remote court appearance, you got to give them like two weeks notice or something like that. And I interpreted the new rule as we're going to make it a little more difficult for you to be remote because I think some of these judges want people back. I'm not sure about that or not. But then uh, we had this little thing that was called the gas price. You know, and I, I hope that the court system is is having pity on the people out there for having to drive, you know, through, you know, from from the valley, for example, downtown L.A. or, you know, from Pasadena to Pomona or something. That's, that's a lot of gas. So it's another reason to do the remote appearances, which I'm a strong proponent of. Uh, I just love it. I think that, you know, we're more effective and I, I won't go off on all the reasons why. But two of your appearances recently were in person. So was that by convenience? Why, why did you choose to do that? So I tend to give clients the option. If it's something like oh. a scheduling hearing, I don't see the need to incur fees to appear in person. Like if the TSC or something of that nature or have an agreement with opposing counsel, that we're going to continue it. But if it's something substantive, I like to make face-to-face -face contact with the judge. I feel like they're people, right? They like to get persuaded in person. It's more persuasive than over video or over the phone. And just with technology, I feel like there's so many glitches that can arise. I think you've mentioned that sometimes persons forget to mute themselves. And so <laughs> <laughs> I like to appear in person. You have better client control. Clients feel more comfortable being able to speak with them. And when it's a substantive issue, I think you can connect with the judge a lot better than by remote appearance. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I, I think that common sense would tell you that when a judge sees you there and, you know, in your fullest, you know, you're there, you're not on, a, on the TV, you know, that they would connect with you better. I personally, though, have had uh, as good, if not better, results advocating on like law and motion issues remotely, and I think it's because I've got my war table with me. I mean, I've got all the documents, and I've got you know the paralegal right down the hall, and all that stuff. Maybe that's what it is. And I'm sitting there waiting to get called, and I'm preparing as I'm waiting. But I, I think Anthony's like you too. He likes to go in and face to face like like that. I would never do a serious evidentiary hearing remotely. I don't think I've tried a small one, and there were a lot of glitches with that, yeah. Just with trial, like having to exchange exhibits remotely ahead of time, or let's say you're using an impeachment exhibit where it wasn't given ahead of time, I think it's so much more difficult doing it remote than just being in person and being able to hand it to opposing counsel, being able to hand it to the judge, and yeah, just logistically, I think it's easier. Yeah, now there's some judges that love the remote stuff, I think because they just don't want people hanging out in their courtroom and stuff, but, you know, but... I won't speak for them. But anyways, that's interesting. So the two and two, without divulging the names, what kind of cases were they, the ones that you went in on? So the one I went in on was a property control issue. So our client filed an RFO to get uh, property control and exclusive control of a community business, um, which in part was a trailer because the trucking business. Oh. So there was a lot of argument about kind of pre-trial orders on exclusive use and control of a business and of a trailer. Usually it's homes. People usually go in to try to get exclusive use and control of a home pre-trial. Mm. But in this case, it was a business. Yeah, that's one you'd want to go in on because there might be, uh, I don't know if in your case, sometimes the judge has to order people to sign documents or, or whatever when there's like exclusive use of a, of a business or um, what was the other one that I see? Oh, when you're selling a house, you know, there's a deed. She won't sign it or he won't sign it. You know, you bring the deed in there and stuff. So, okay. What was the other one? It was a custody issue that was super highly contentious, which oh. was 
actually funny because the other side was adamant about not settling. And then the day of the hearing, she completely settled everything, which made it easy because then we just went on the record and agreed, you know, put the stipulations on the record and it was easy. But it was just funny because I told my client, now I understand, you know, you say she's kind of dual personality because she was she was really aggressive leading up to the hearing and then the day of the hearing she was totally amicable yeah i would say that people are very brave until they have to walk into the courthouse then all of a sudden they're like well i don't really have a claim here i'm going to be really butchered when i go in there okay what do you, you know and there's a truth to that sometimes the way to get to the end is is to kind of move the case forward cool so we're going to be talking about child custody today and uh, i don't know how how are we going to entitle this parental let's see we're gonna co-parenting right co-parenting okay i like to look and, at it. and you are a resident expert in co-parenting somewhat i mean i'm a co-parent myself i've been co-parenting the past three years with my former partner and we have a six-year-old daughter i like to think we're pretty successful at it yeah i'm glad that you are successful and, and that you could share some of your thoughts both as an attorney and as a parent so you know there's so many cases that we have where people are not co-parenting and I got to tell you that as a professional, I get really bummed out by it, you know, because of the kids, not because of the, the parents. I mean, if they hate each other, they hate each other. But I really do see a lot of situations where kids are put in the middle. What do you think causes people to uh, put themselves first rather than the kids? I think that's exactly it. They love themselves more than they love their child or they love to hate the other side more than they love their child. I think when you put the child at the center of your actions, you can't possibly hate the other parent because you're going to act in a way that benefits the child. You're not going to badmouth mom. You're not going to badmouth dad. You're going to want to compromise. You're going to want to do maybe family activities for the child's benefit because you know ultimately they're the ones that reap the benefits of that. Yeah, I think what you, I always thought that they love themselves first, but I never thought they hate the other person more than they love their kid almost in some way like, like that. So, so what do you think that uh, the courts can do uh, that would work, actually work in making orders for parents that don't co-parent? You know, what, what makes sense to you? I mean, I know that they're given these co-parenting therapists that can assist them on their co-parenting relationship, but I actually think it goes beyond that because in order to get to that point, the individual has to be healed and be open and receptive to co-parenting with the other side. Mm. And I think a lot of times, I'm sure you've had your clients tell you, they're this person, they did this, they cheated on me, they stole from me, they hurt me, they abused me, et cetera. And they're focused on how that person was as a partner, as a spouse, and not how that person is as a mother, as a father. And so you need to be able to distinguish those roles because they are distinct. And I think once you can separate them, then you are ready and you're in a place to do the co-parenting therapist. You you view yourself as a co-parent. You view the other side as a co-parent. You're not viewing them as my ex, my the abuser, the cheater, whatever, what have you. And so how, how do you think a person can get to that point? Is it through individual therapy? Sometimes it's therapy, individual therapy. Sometimes it's just realizing whoever that person was prior to this point is that person. And I need to let my own personal feelings towards them go as a partner, as a spouse, and only view them as my co-parent and move forward in that direction. Hmm. You know, I there's a judge who will go unnamed that tends to yell at parents, thinking that, I guess it's almost like a scared straight. I don't know if you've ever seen that 
old show, but they would get these kids that were juvenile delinquents, and they would bring them into this room, and there's these big ex-convicts, you know, sitting in there, and they'd yell at them and scare them to death, and the thought was that they'll never commit another crime again because they got scared straight. You know, and this judge's approach is kind of like that. He turns right in the face, and he starts preaching to them, and I can tell you that in my experience, the preaching doesn't change people because they just walk out there, and they still are acting the way they are. So, so your thoughts about um, coming to that that conclusion of I've got to be a parent, a co-parent, and see myself as a co-parent rather than you know thinking about the relationship. Do you think that there's something the court can do other than yell at them that would guide them to come to that realization? I mean, make it an order. Maybe you order the individual counseling. Okay. I know that they do that with like DVs where they order you know batter's intervention program. Maybe as opposed to a batter's intervention program they do an anger management program. They do eight to 10 weeks of individual counseling and make it kind of a normal part of the procedure in addition to the co-parenting therapist or the family therapist, whatever it is the court orders. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, there's some rules in family law where the court can't make people go to quote unquote individual therapy, but they could say something like, well, you know, if you're hoping to get more custody, I'd like to see, you know, you do something like like that, you know, and so there's ways around that, right? And I kind of think I know what judge you're talking about, and he does a really good job of stretching his authority, we'll say, right. by letting people think that he has the authority to make certain orders, and then they agree to it, thereby right. giving them him that authority. So I think if other judges kind of push that envelope a little bit and push the parties more towards an agreement that they agree to the therapy, that's a way to get them yeah. into the individual counseling. I agree. I agree. So now let's talk to the flip side. Good co-parenting yourself and other you know clients that you've seen that are good co-parents. What do you think, um, what, do you have any tips? Any tips for people that, that are just coming into a custody situation or getting divorced or you know they've never been married but suddenly the relationship is over with and they find themselves thinking about the future? You know, and What tips would you give them other than what you've already given us now? I think remaining open to compromise and seeing it as a partnership is really important. Especially with my job, you know, even though I have my set days with my daughters, sometimes I'll have a court appearance on a Tuesday, for example, and that would be my day. I text, you know, Renee, who's her father, and I'm like, hey, I have court this week. Like last week I had the three weeks. Can you pick up the slack this week? Can you, you know, pick her up in the morning, drop her off at school? Can we exchange this weekend for another weekend, what have you? And we're both kind of on the same page about that, where we make those accommodations. And I think that's really important because life is full of surprises. And if you're on this, oh, it's your weekend because the first weekend of the month, or it's your Wednesday dinner, so I'm not gonna let you take her to your parents' house or what have you, it just leads to more conflict. And I think it just, the animosity festers from these little, little things, but yeah. then it, because it doesn't get spoken about or resolved, it becomes much bigger issues later. So not to get too personal, but were you always a good co-parent? No. Okay. <laughs> I think when we first separated, it was very difficult because both of us had our respective hangups about the relationship and us as partners. But kind of fairly quickly, we saw the toll it was taking on our daughter, and we realized that's not the path we wanted to go down. And he did some individual counseling, I did some individual counseling, and we kind of were able to work through that's so mature through that problem. Wow, wow I love that. I, you know, you've never heard me say this, but I knew a, a woman who was living really close by to her ex-husband. And oh my God, man, they did exactly what you're doing is like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm stuck at work. Can you cover for me? You know, they were always like that, you know, and I thought that was just so cool. The kids were 
definitely um, balanced and you know they knew that both parents loved them and they were still a family even though you know they both had their separate you know lives and everything when there was a family event they were still together they took family photographs and and things like that that's definitely what he and i do um, i came from divorced parents so i know kind of the outcome that happens when you have a really contentious ugly messy divorce mm-hmm. And so I didn't want that for Natalia. And so even though he and I have been separated for three years and we each have our respective partners and kind of gone on with our lives, we'll still get breakfast as a family every once in a while or oh, we'll plan her birthday party together because ultimately she benefits from it. And she you know, she'll know, she'll say, oh, you know, mommy and daddy are friends. And I think it's helpful for her to know that she has that support system, that even though she has two households, ultimately we're still a family. That's awesome. With regard to the the clothing, I know a lot of parents are very territorial when it comes to clothing, toys, and things like that. You know, I, she's got a pink sweater. Better come back with me, you know, and stuff. Um, what would you suggest with respect to, you know, that type of, I guess it's logistics when the child's going back and forth to make it easier on the child? Honestly, I think that kind of stuff is petty. I always tell my clients, like, the Gap outfit that you bought her is way less expensive than money you're spending on attorney's fees, having me contact opposing counsel to get it back. But I mean, ultimately it's about what someone's comfortable with. If they wanna have respective belongings at each person's household, then you know you bring them back in the same clothes that you receive them in kind of thing so that each person gets their own belongings. There's rules for that that you can include as part of the judgment if necessary. Um, I just kind of think it's it's a little bit petty and not, petty. not worth the fees ultimately to be arguing about, you know, a gap sweater. If it's something really expensive, I don't know, or something sentimental, like a family heirloom, a family dress, something of that nature, I understand it. But otherwise, I think that those little issues are really just kind of nitpicking at bigger issues that are unresolved. Because when the bigger issues are resolved, you're not going to be worried about this little petty stuff, in my opinion. Yeah. There's a there's another thing that, I, by the way, I'm divorced and I, I co-parented and I understand the logistics problems. Um, homework, you know, as a lot of times we see in our, our clients' cases that the homework is put in a backpack and the parent that's with the child is supposed to be doing that. Is there is there a way to uh, ensure that the child's thriving in school? You know, in, even though they may have to different parents that have different ideas of education and and things of that nature? I think that's where you need to be on the same page and establish a routine regardless of whose house the child is at. You know, sometimes you have those midweek exchanges. I have that, you know, the 2-2-3 schedule where you have the midweek exchange. So part of the week is at one parent's house, part of the week is at the other parent's house. But at least I speak for myself. I know he and I have the same routine. We pick her up from school, let her unwind a little bit, um, feed her a snack, do some homework, have dinner get her to bed, she's sleeping by 8, 8.30. So I think regardless of what parent's house she's at, she has that same routine. I think that's how parents can like be on the same page about that to ensure that the education is being promoted as a priority. Because then she knows I'm not gonna get away with not doing homework at dad's house just because I'm with dad. And I'm not gonna forget my homework at mom's house because everything gets put in the folder, gets transported. And she has that stability and that routine at both persons' houses. How do, how do you keep that coordinated? Do you talk regularly about, okay, this is what's going on? or, or what? I keep him updated as does he. So like sometimes he'll pick her up from school and then he'll tell me whatever the teacher relayed. Or likewise, I had her parent-teacher conference uh, via Zoom last Monday. And then I let him know, oh, this is where Natalia's struggling. This is where she's thriving. These are the overall comments. We need to work on this. We need to work on that. She has a field trip coming up, et cetera, et cetera. That regular communication needs to be key. It can't just be one parent that takes on the majority of the burden because then you're not co-parenting, right? Then you're just, one's a primary parent and one's kind of the 
I think colloquially it's called the Disneyland dad. Right. And then, but I also think sometimes you need to give the Disneyland dad the opportunity to be a real dad. Have him take on some of that real parenting, the homework, the bathing, the feeding, bedtime routines, et cetera. That's awesome. Wow. So with this experience that you have, do you think it makes you a better family law attorney? I definitely think so because I can advise my clients. I know what they've been through because I've been in their shoes and I can tell them what not to do and what to do, learning from my own mistakes at the very beginning. And I do. I do push my clients. Some of them are still in a position of wanting to punish the other side. And I kind of have to tell them, I don't agree with that philosophy, but if that's how you want to go forward, go for it. Just know this is where it's going to end up. The court's not going to look kindly upon it. You're going to spend way more attorney's fees and you're only further tarnishing your relationship. I know my clients can tell you, because I tell them all the time, when you're done with this, you're done with me, but you're stuck with that person for the (laughs) remainder of your child's life. And so the sooner you guys can get on the same page and have a good relationship, the better for your child, the better for yourself, the less money you're spending. Because as you know, we do have those repeat customers that come back and have to file an RFO to modify custody or modify support and it ends up costing them thousands of dollars that they could have otherwise saved. Yeah, and also I think that studies have supported the idea that children don't thrive as well during contentious uh, breakups. You know, um, they, they did a, a study uh, over 25 years and showed that the uh, study group of children who were uh, children of divorced parents didn't thrive quite as much as, you know, intact families. I personally think that you could bridge that gap by being good co-parents, you know, and stuff, because it's the fighting and it's the um, lack of communications and the lack of love in a lot of ways that hurt children as they're trying to develop. And, you know, especially, you know, when they're in those critical development, uh, developmental ages, which I understand is zero to five and then teenagers, you know, and stuff. Yeah. So um, is there uh, a particular uh client that has done really well without naming that you, you feel proud of that you were able to assist you know in, in a co-parenting way actually yes i was just talking to her yesterday and she was like i'm so grateful for you and i'm like i'm so grateful for you because <laughs> you do what you're supposed to do you know and i think she's a good example because she has that dv background where her spouse was abusive towards her and she was able to put aside those feelings of him being a shitty husband to be honest from his role as the children's father and that's something, you know, she was able to do. And we've came to agreements on custody. She's made compromises so that it doesn't affect the kids because she admitted, you know, he's a great father. He just is not a great husband, which is why we're getting divorced. Yeah. So I think that I'm I'm proud of her for being able to learn that distinction, even when there's that DV background, because I've also had clients who are like, but he's an abuser. He's this. He's that. And I kind of have to remind them, yes, I, I fully agree with you. I, I recommend you get therapy to deal with those issues. But how is he as a father? What is the connection between that and the father? And sometimes there is a connection, and sometimes it's just the feelings of anger, of sadness, of fear, really, sometimes, too. Cool. Well, I think this has been fun. Uh, You know, you and I have been talking about doing this for a long time, you know, and we finally uh, put it to press. So um, please come back. Let's do this again on a different topic. But you are a resident expert on co-parenting. Uh, thank you for sharing. Of course. I actually was thinking about another one we can talk about next time. What's that? Some tips that attorneys wish clients knew. Ooh, okay. Because well, I that, think that's, that'll be the that'd next be an interesting one. topic. Yeah. Maybe they can let us know if that's something they're interested in hearing about because I'd love to share my thoughts on that. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.